Hello and welcome to Balagan, the podcast that will put things in order for a better understanding of Israeli politics. I am Kobe Cohen, a former political advisor and currently a political columnist and Israel educator. In many of my conversations with my American friends and family, I have noticed that Israeli politics is challenging to understand and quite blurry at times. So I'm here to explain how it works, who are the different players, and why the different players are acting the way they act. So if you're interested in getting what's happening in Israel, that's your place. My podcast will be thorough and brief, with many guests, giving you the best information about Israeli politics and society. It will deal with the structure of the political system in Israel, the different groups of interest, the players' history, along with analysis of what is happening today. I promise to be as objective as possible and guarantee it will always be interesting. So stay tuned. Once every couple of years comes a new kid to the playground of Israeli politics. A small party, which at many times nobody takes seriously at first, becomes the election surprise and usually has the power to make an impact on shaping the new government. At most times, that party also vanishes after one or two elections. Dash in 1977, Shinui between 1999 to 2003, and Gil Hagimlaim, the veterans between 2006 to 2009. Those parties usually enjoy the support of many left-wingers who are also disappointed with the system and looking for something new and clean without understanding the political game. In the upcoming election, we have many new players, but only one is based on the Balfour rallies, Democratic. My guest today is Eran Etzion, democracy and public policy entrepreneur and candidate in Israel's newly established Democratic Party primaries. Formerly a senior diplomat and strategist who served as deputy head of Israel's National Security Council and head of policy planning in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And Iran, thank you very much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. So tell me, Iran, what is the Democratic Party? Well, it's actually not what you said it was in your opening statement. Okay. Um, the better analogies actually exist in Europe. What do I mean by this? There are two major parties in Europe, one in Italy and one in Spain, that are to a certain extent an inspiration for us in the sense of having grown from mass political anti-corruption protests in the streets of major cities, both in Spain and in Italy, and in what one might call a pretty speedy process of a short number of years became political parties that at first were very successful in the municipal arena and then went into the parliament and government. The Italian party is called Five Stars and it, for the last year or two, has been actually the largest party in, in Italy and the governing party in the coalition. And in Spain, it is called Podemos, which is Spanish for We Can. And they are now the third largest party in Spain, and they're part of the coalition. So, as I'm sure our listeners know, Israel in the last six to eight months has undergone the largest ever anti-corruption mass protest in our history. You called it the Balfour protest. Uh, it is essentially an anti-Netanyahu and an anti-corruption protest that I'm honored to be a part of. 
and I have been a part of for the last four years, actually, beginning from a very small circle of persistent protesters in uh, Petah Tikva. In Goren Square. Yes, opposite uh, the uh, Attorney General's uh, apartment, Avicha Mendelblit. Mendelblit. Then going through the so-called Rothschild protests in Tel Aviv and Habima Square, and all the way to Balfour and the uh, bridges and squares that we have seen, the so-called uh, black flag protests in the last six months. So it's been an, a very lengthy process that took a very critical turn with the arrest of one of the key figures in the protests approximately six months ago, Amir Askel, who is a retired Air Force yeah. pilot and commander. And the political point here is simple. There is a huge crowd of Israelis that has been politically awakened, something that we haven't seen since 2011, and we never saw in terms of the persistence of these protests, because in 2011, We had probably a similar number of crowds, but it only lasted for about a month or two. Here, the numbers are big, the locations are multiple across the country, and most importantly, it has persisted for, again, more than half a year, which is amazing and very un-Israeli, if I may say so. We're not uh, usually too persistent in, in, in those kinds of political actions. So what we are actually doing in the Democratic Party is trying to leverage these mass protests in a similar way to what Podemos and Five Stars did in their respective countries. This is not to say that we want to replace what is going on in Balfour in the uh, bridges and squares. We still go there every week or even more. But we believe that the next step, the next phase for the protests needs to be entering into Israel's parliament, the Knesset, and into the government. While we don't have too much time, we only began our campaign essentially two weeks ago, we are already seeing some very positive responses or reactions, especially from those very crowds of uh, activists that are part of the protests. And this is what we're trying to do, essentially. So the Democratic Party was actually formed by people who rallied against Netanyahu. So who are the team members? I mean, who's the leading team, if yes. you call it this way? It was formed not by myself, but by an interesting academician, a professor of mathematics and biology who has been uh, studying, among other things, distributed networks, sophisticated blockchain-type distributed ownership of networks. And he was part of the protests, and he came to the conclusion a few months ago that, as I said before, the next phase for the protests needs to be the formation of a political party that, in his words, will essentially be handed over to those youngsters and elders who are protesting, and will be a platform for them to continue their activism in the main arena of the parliament and the government. So he went about this project at the very beginning on his own, and very quickly a small number of people had joined him. I was one of them, and he wrote a constitution, a party constitution, which can be read on our website, amongst all other documents pertaining to the party, because one of the main principles that we are very strict about is the principle of transparency and accountability. So you can see and read the constitution and the party uh, internal uh, protocols and mechanisms and institutions and so on. And he was joined also by some of his fellow scientists, Dr. Orna Berry, who was the chief scientist of the government for many years, Yeah. and has now actually submitted just a few weeks ago a very bold and, and uh, historically important 
National AI Multi-Year Plan for the government. He was also joined by uh, Professor Ruth Arnon, who invented the uh, Copaxon, which is uh, Teva's very famous yeah. uh, Medicine. drug. Medicine. And by uh, Wahid Hozael, who's a Bedouin retired officer who served uh, on the Gaza front. I think he won a medal for courage, or, true. right? True, exactly. in a t- famous terror incident that he uh, helped defend against, yes, many years ago. And uh, Radir Hani, who's also a Bedouin activist, originally from the uh, northern part of Israel, but has been active for many years in, also in the Negev, in the south. And by uh, Meli Polishuk, who is a former member of Knesset, actually of the Shinui in party Shinoi, that, yes. that you mentioned in your uh, <laughs> opening remarks. And Avi Cohen, who's a veteran activist for direct and participatory democracy. And I hope I'm not forgetting anyone. This was the first group that uh, came together in order to support and, and build this uh, project. Very quickly, we were joined by dozens of uh, enthusiast activists, mainly from the ranks of the Balfour protest. Two weeks ago, we opened the party registration. We already have thousands of registered members who are paying members also. And this is a pretty remarkable achievement because, as we'll probably discuss that, there's a huge amount of mistrust vis-à-vis the political system and political parties and the fact that these relatively large numbers have already voted kind of a vote of trust in this new platform by enlisting and registering and paying is pretty impressive. And we already have approximately 30 candidates for the primaries that we announced just a couple of days ago. In what it seems now, it's going to be the only primaries that's going to happen in any party this year, because the Labour Party hardly exists. Uh, and the yes. Likud Party announced last week that they're not going to have primaries, and also mm-hmm. Meretz, which was also a party that was having primaries. It's a sad testament to the state of Israeli democracy that has been uh, rapidly deteriorating, and the level of uh, internal democracy in parties actually plummeted from a situation in which many, if not most parties, felt compelled to have some sort of internal democracy. Right now, as you just said, we will probably be the only ones that will conduct primaries. But on the other hand, talking about primaries, mm-hmm. you know, the Likud kept on bringing us surprises like Miki Zohar, Oren Hazan, yeah. Osnat Mark, uh, all sorts of MKs that were trying to shine in not such a positive way. So maybe, you know, primaries are not always the best way. But I want to ask you, you're basing yourself on the people, right? Mm-hmm. And technically, you're trying to do crowdfunding for your campaign, or how is it going to work? I mean, most yeah. parties have budgets. They have uh, the support of, of course, the Knesset from a law, but also they have big beneficiaries, you know, like Yair Lapid, before he joined the politics with Yashatid, he had a strong economical background, some of the high-tech uh, tycoons and... Yes. Let me perhaps take uh, half a step back and describe the kind of democracy that we are actually proposing, which is unlike any other Israeli party and has some similarities to the two parties that I mentioned, Podemos and Five Stars in Italy and Spain. Essentially, the whole premise of the party is as follows. Democracy is in decay. Internal democracy within parties, as we said, in Israel, but not only in Israel, but especially in Israel, is also on a sharp decline. And one needs to reinvent the model of a political party in a new way that will enable the citizenry, 
both party members but also the wider citizenry to uh, reinstate their trust in this particular political party and political mechanism. In order to do that, one needs to essentially tear down the walls between the representatives and the represented party members and representatives in the Knesset and in the government. What does it mean? It means that there is one party institution within the Democratic Party. It is the entire collective of all party registered paying party members, okay? And we call them the sovereign. They are the sovereign within the party. And they are the ones that have the ultimate say about major party decisions. For example, if the Democratic Party will enter the Knesset in these coming elections and will negotiate on a coalition agreement, the coalition agreement will have to be submitted, and this is mandated in our party platform, the agreement will have to be submitted to all party members for a vote. Unless they approve it, it will not be approved. Why is this important? And this is a very strong now scar, a very deep scar that a million and a half Israelis bear since the last round of election. The huge betrayal that we experienced by both Blue and White and the Labour Party and a number of other, I would almost call them criminal members of Knesset, like Oli Levi Abekasis and others, that essentially stole the votes of a million and a half Israelis, betrayed their trust, and even though their main pledge before the elections was that they will not join a coalition governed by Netanyahu, simply jumped into his coalition and never thought twice about it and never even thought to go back to their voters and ask for their opinion. So what we are telling now our potential voters and members, we're telling them, listen, this horrible experience that you had, this total loss of trust that you experienced, and justifiably so, because they stole your vote, this is not going to happen. Because we promise you, and this is a contract, a formal legal contract between you and us, that we will bring to you for a vote, a mandatory vote, any coalition agreement that we will sign. Unless you approve it, we will not join any government or any coalition. So you can rest assured that the betrayal is not going to repeat itself if you vote for the Democratic Party. And this is not something that any other party can, in any kind of a measure of, uh, of, uh, of trust, offer its own voters. Because as we all experienced, and this is again, I cannot overemphasize how strong this sentiment is now within the Israeli constituency. We were certain that those people, like Benny Gantz, like Ashkenazi, like Peretz, like Shmuley, will not betray us because they promised and we believed them. And this was the whole point of the whole election campaign. It was all about deposing Netanyahu. And once they did it, again, it was a huge breakdown of trust. And when people are now contemplating who to vote for, this will be first and foremost on their minds. How can I be certain that my vote will not be stolen? And no other party has any kind of similar mechanism or any kind of internal democracy, as I just described, that will prevent it. The voter is simply asked again to put a blind trust in, in some cases, the very same people, in other cases, perhaps some new faces, but we have no guarantee. And the Democratic Party is the only one that gives its voters this kind of guarantee.
But this is not all that there is to say about the mechanism. But I do want to ask you one thing. I'm sorry that I'm yes. stopping you. I do want to talk to you about this mechanism because yeah. it sounds great in theory. Yes. But when you go into details, mm-hmm. okay, and you look at how parties are uh, running. So you mm-hmm. have, for example, Yeshatid and the Israel Beitenu, you know, Lieberman's yes. party. Yes. And they are not having any problems with their, uh, <laughs> with their members, you know. And in a way, it sounds great that you want to share everything, that it will be an open democracy. Mm-hmm. But eventually you may get outcomes that are not what you intended to. I mean, you're going to say, okay, we agreed upon one, two, three, four, five things with X and Y. And now you're giving the power to the people and they will tell you, no, we want something else. It makes things a lot more complicated to go back and forth when you're negotiating and you have one or two f- or maybe a team of people negotiating instead of having 10,000 people that technically are negotiating. You're negotiating on their behalf, but you're actually looking not just for their trust, but for their approval of every step you're making. Not every step, but yes, the final decision, the, the critical decisions, absolutely. Our argument is that this is the only way to uh, regain trust of voters in the system. As a citizen, and I speak to hundreds and thousands of uh, my fellow citizens, this is our main concern right now. We do not trust those politicians, those parties, those methods that actually failed us. And we will not put our trust again in those same methods and same politicians or new politicians that will adopt the same methods. It's very simple. We simply won't trust them. Perhaps some others will. Okay, those Shas voters or Agudat uh, Israel voters, Degela Torah, those uh, ultra-religious voters yes. that follow their rabbis, you know, for them it's a different story. By the way, not all of them. There is also some dissent within their ranks. But many of them will continue to vote because, you know, this is the kind of political culture, theological political culture that was uh, nurtured for decades, if not more. But this is not the case for us for Israeli Democrats that put their trust in the political system and were betrayed. So the change needs to be exactly along the lines that I'm portraying. And this is true, I know for sure, for many of us. So when you mentioned those examples of the authoritarian parties of Lieberman, Lapid, now Ron Khuldai, or any other party or any other person that uh, for reasons of, uh, let's say, convenience, plus inflated ego, believes that simply on their own shoulders, they can carry hundreds of thousands of votes, and they don't bother to build institutions, and they don't look back to see where the voters are. Once they enter into the Knesset, they simply don't care. This is not the kind of politics that I or we want to encourage. If uh, I had it my way, I would like Israel to have a law that resembles the German law, The German party law actually forbids the existence of non-democratic parties. You cannot have a political party in Germany unless you have an internal democratic mechanism. And I think this is badly needed in Israel also. And this would, if I would be a member of Knesset, this would be one of my priorities. I think there needs to be a separation of church and state in Israel in that regard too. I don't want to see extra territorial or extra-democratic organizations like Moetzet Dole Torah, the Council of Rabbis, that instructs 
formally democratically elected representatives that are actually puppets of unelected rabbis. This is not democracy. This is an Israeli invention. You know, it's not nice to hear for us Israelis, but it resembles uh, other uh, regimes in, in, in our vicinity that we don't really care to emulate. I owe you a, an earlier response to the money issue and fundraising and so on. One of our principles is that we do not want to, or I'll put it in a different way. One of the problems of the Israeli system, by the way, much like the American system, is the over-influence of, as President Trump says, big money. <laughs> he says big money, big tech, big media. We don't have, you know, the proportions in Israel are very different compared to America. The American big is not the Israeli big and so on. But we do have, and this is all the cases actually, uh, case 1,000, 2,000, 4,000 that uh, the Prime Minister Netanyahu is being indicted for, yes. all involve, let's say, malpractice and all sorts of uh, illegal connections of money and politics and media. Right. So we don't want to follow this route and we want to make sure that we are not slaves to any kind of alien interest, big money interest of, of any kind. You don't so want even, to lobby for somebody at the end. You want so, to lobby for the public. Exactly. So if a millionaire or a billionaire comes to us and says, you know, let me give you five million shekels and this might be actually the difference between entering the Knesset or not, we will politely or perhaps not so politely reject it. And we don't want to have any kind of dependence. We want to have micro donations. We want to have loan guarantees in relatively small amounts from as many people as we can. Uh, Lapid, as you correctly mentioned, when he started his own party, he took uh, relatively big sums of money from approximately 30 people to the tune of one million to half a million shekel from each. This is not what we want to do. We prefer to have you know, thousands or tens of thousands of uh, micro donations instead of relying on big money from big donors. I would say that in a way it's a bit naive, I mean, politically wise. In the US, only two politicians, or actually three, actually succeeded with crowdfunding. The first one was uh, Barack Obama, second one was Bernie Sanders, and the third one is actually Alexandra Oxio-Cortez from uh, New York. She's a congresswoman, a young congresswoman, who's actually, I would say, she was an apprentice of uh, Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. It's not that common to see crowdfunding for political campaigns. Do you really think that it has a chance in Israel? Especially when you're talking about a lot of money that you need to promote yourself. I mean, to yeah. promote the party. Well, actually, it's much more popular in the U.S. than what you mentioned. Many, many politicians are doing it and very successfully. But in America, we have a different political culture, tradition, professionalism in politics and so on. I'm not naive and I don't think that certainly not within a short period of time we'll be able to do something on the scale of AOC or Sanders or anything like that. But as I said earlier, every new member that joins our party is already paying. Okay, it is a fee and not a donation, but it's in terms of actually reaching out into your pocket and putting money, is yeah. it's a similar action. And we give them the option on our website to donate more than just the 20 shekels that are the mandatory fee. And 20 shekels, just for our listeners, it's approximately 
seven, seven eight, dollars. Yes, it's uh, it's minor. It's it's nothing. But we give them the option to give much more. There's a ceiling of uh, five thousand for a single donor, five thousand shekels, and eleven thousand five hundred shekels for a family or household. So we give them the option to give anywhere from 20 shekels until the maximum uh, legal amount. And thousands of people have already donated more than what they needed to. The average donation, if I remember correctly, is approximately 60 shekels. So people are giving three times on average as much as, as they must, which is nice and also pretty rare in Israel. Obviously, we need much more. In order to wage a successful campaign in Israel, one needs anywhere from let's put it in dollars, anywhere from, uh, let's say, $1.5 million to, minimum. to $5 million or, or even more, depending on how many mandates you, you aspire to get. And we're trying to raise money and hopefully we'll be more successful than previous attempts, let's put it this way, also in terms of crowdfunding. I want to go to agenda mm-hmm. because you were talking, you know, it started from anti-corruption movement. But you got to have, I mean, your website is uh, really easy to go to. It's really nice. Mm-hmm. It's up to date. And it's actually in two languages. It's in Hebrew and Arabic, which is not that common for most parties in Israel. And I think it's beautiful because we do need to remind that Arabic is an official language in the state of Israel. I would say the law is not being enforced on publication. Like so many other laws. Yes. Yeah. But you got to have agenda economic sure. agenda and political agenda. I mean, talking about, you know, we spoke about Arabic. What's your approach uh, with the Palestinians? What's your approach with the Israeli Arabs? Are you going to sure. collaborate? I mean, you did mention that you have two Bedouins in your uh, founders list, mm-hmm. but are you going to bring Israeli Arabs as well? Are you going to ensure yes. women's representation? Sure. What's the agenda? So let's talk about two levels here. One is the level of ideology and constitution, and the other is the level of uh, policy and representation. In terms of ideology and constitution, as I said before, Professor Shapira wrote a brilliant constitution, very condensed, very clear, very democratic, which essentially anchors the four main values that the party stands for, the value of democracy, the value of freedom, value of equality, and the value of solidarity. All these are the basic foundations of what we stand for, and they are stated extremely clearly in the Constitution. And this is the framework by which we operate. In other words, if somebody, either from the ranks of the members or from the ranks of candidates or prospective parliament or or government members from our party, let's say ventures a draft bill calling for the, uh, I don't know, the exclusion of Israeli Arabs from certain, I don't know, rights in Israel. Something which unfortunately is not unthinkable in Israeli politics. But in our party, it simply cannot stand because it contradicts the party constitution and therefore cannot even be proposed, let alone discussed, let alone approved by any kind of a party institution. So we have a very stringent framework, ideological constitutional by which we work. That's number one. Number two, in terms of policy and representation, since the whole principle of the party revolves around absolute sovereignty of the party members within the party, until we have a sovereign which has elected its representatives in free and fair elections, which we will have on the 23rd of January this month, 
unless and until we have this whole arrangement of thousands of people that are the sovereign and tens of elected representatives, we cannot really have the mandate to propose to the wider Israeli public any kind of specific policy suggestions or plans or bills, okay? With very few exceptions that I will not bore you with, such as term limits for prime minister and the barring of any candidacy of any politician that has any kind of indictment, which of course is directed straight at Netanyahu, but not only. We have three other members of government, ministers, that are expecting indictments. So we want to get rid of all of them, essentially. This is one of our commitments. But in terms of other specific suggestions, in terms of economics, education, health, environment, and so on, all the big issues, what we're doing right now is we have teams of experts that you can also find on our website. We have some of the best people, for example, in the field of education that have joined us freely and are contributing their time free of charge and putting together what I hope will amount to the best possible plans on reforming Israeli education, which is badly needed. And this will be proposed by those experts to the sovereign, to party members, and to those that will be elected. And they will decide which of them they want to adopt. And this will become the party platform on education, for example. And the same will be done on all other areas. One more important thing in terms of ministerial positions in our party. All Knesset members or candidates like myself, we are running for Knesset seats. Okay? If somebody wants to run for a ministerial seat, this somebody needs to say, I want to be the party's candidate for, in my case, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So I need to state this. And the party rules necessitate that after the general elections, if and when we enter into coalition, and if we have one or more ministries that we are entitled to because of the terms of the agreement, we will have second primaries in which those that want to serve as ministers in those particular portfolios will run for, and they will not be allowed to be both members of Knesset and ministers. They will have to choose. The Norwegian law. Exactly. So we want to encourage experts, people with a lot of experience in certain professional fields, to put forward their candidacy for ministerial positions as differentiated from Knesset seats. Okay. It all sounds great. I'm, I'm telling you honestly, it sounds like you, a, you some sort of... True. Exactly. Yeah. Uto- utopia. <laughs> uh, and yes. in a way, I think that's your uniqueness. Mm-hmm. But I want to ask you politically wise, do you think that you have enough runway for these upcoming elections? Do you think that you can uh, make an impact? I mean, the thresholds are at 3.5% of yes. all voters. Yes. And it's quite a high bar. It means that you need a minimum of 140,000 voters, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. In order to get to the Knesset. Yes. First of all, let's uh, stay for a minute on the word utopia. I'm a great Herzl fan. 118 years ago, Herzl wrote Alt Neuland which in Hebrew spells Tel Aviv, or was translated to Tel Aviv, New Old Land, Tel Aviv. And of course, at the time, it was laughed at as a totally detached from reality utopia. And 118 years later, we know where we are. And by the way, he still has many 
great ideas in that remarkable book that are still applicable to this day and were not unfortunately applied. It's, it's quite amazing, actually. I, I recommend rereading or uh, reading for the first time for those who haven't. Yeah. <laughs> um, utopia is not negative to me, quite the opposite. Israel was built only because of, I believe, yeah. utopians like Herzl and others. Yeah. And unfortunately, we've reached a sad state of dystopia. One could argue both in Israel and in the U.S., but we need a separate conversation about the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, in Israel, many of us feel that we do live in dystopian times, certainly in terms of the state of democracy and the crisis of trust between citizens and institutions and so on. So I think what Israelis are looking for perhaps is not a utopia or a grand vision, but they are looking for a restart in many, many ways. Actually, just today I went to my dentist and she told me completely on her own initiative. When we started talking about politics, she said something like, yes, you know, I believe that we need to restart. We need to simply have a complete evacuation or demolition of the systems that we have right now in education, in health, in uh, communication, everywhere, and rebuild it from scratch. This is a very popular sentiment now in Israel. Of course, not everything is possible, certainly not at once, but I think our political system is completely stuck around most critical issues that need to be resolved. This is not a new phenomenon. Take, for example, our service model, military service model and civil service model that is completely outdated. We don't have time to elaborate, but it needs yeah. a complete revamping. And no, it's definitely. not a coincidence that uh, successive governments have been uh, very eager to push it aside and not deal with it because it's uh, a political time bomb. Yes. And this is true for just about any other big policy issues that you can imagine, from social security that has been completely depleted. And, you know, my generation, your generation, simply will not have coverage because it was completely yeah. depleted. And nobody is going to deal with it from those politicians that were part of the scam. And it's true about our natural gas reservoirs that are outrageously being exported without regard to the long-term needs of us, the Israeli citizens. And I could go on and on. So we need major, major, major reforms. And the only way that such reforms will happen is if we have a new type of political force that is fully accountable to its voters, that is uncorrupt and uncorruptible, that is linked to the mass protests and to the civil society in new and innovative ways. And this is exactly what we're doing. And all this must happen if change is to happen. If all we will do in this upcoming election is re-elect some politician either an older politician or a veteran politician or a newer one, but one that will simply employ the same methods. And most of them, unfortunately, this is what they're promising, you know. Trust me, and with me, it's going to be different. Why should we trust you? Why should we trust you? We're not going to repeat the mistake. Well, unfortunately, our time is almost up. I mean, we've been talking and it's really fascinating to speak to you and hear about the initiative. I would like to... Sorry, um, I, have, I have an important point that I forgot, the yes. representation. We are fully committed, again, in our constitution to equal representation for women. 50% representation for women we, is guaranteed in all of our organizations, okay? If we have four Knesset members, two of them will be women. If we have 10, 
five of them will be women, and this is a contractual commitment. In terms of the Israeli Arabs, out of the 30 candidates that we have already for the primaries, we have, um, I'm not sure exactly what the number is, but it's, I think, more than five that are Arab Israelis. Some of them extremely impressive women activists from the Bedouin community and from uh, other communities. And this is actually pretty exciting. I don't think any party in Israeli history has had this kind of representation and activism from the uh, Arab citizenry as, as we are seeing right now. You haven't found any ultra-Orthodox to run in your Actually, party. I was going to say we also have an ultra-Orthodox woman, uh, okay. also an activist, Nina Feufer. She's pretty well known. You can Google her. Uh, who's also a candidate, and she's also remarkable. And more adjoining. So I think in terms of uh, diversity and representation, we will also break new ground in Israeli politics. Great. First thing, Aran, I really want to thank you for your time. The website is only in Hebrew and Arabic, but I will put the link to the website once we publish the episode. We'll keep on following you. So first thing, good luck in the primaries and good luck with the elections. Thank you. Your ideas are great. Let's see how it will turn from vision to reality. Maybe just like the state of Israel and Tel Aviv. Exactly. Thank you very much. I want to thank our listeners and everybody, of course, is more than welcome to support us in any kind of way. If you need to contact me directly, you can do it through Kobe. And uh, I hope to see you in Israel and to have your involvement in elections in general and in uh, the Democratic Party in particular. Thanks. Thank you, Iran, and good luck. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.